0: Paul. So hello, I'm Stephen Wing and welcome to another episode of the Digital Doctor Podcast. Um slightly different today. I don't have my usual colleagues with me, Ed and Wei Kyong, because it's early on a Saturday morning and I suppose they're doing other things. But I'm delighted to be joined by a friend and a colleague, uh, Tim Ritman, who works with me uh in Addenbrookes and Cambridge working on neurology. Hello, Tim. Good morning. How are you doing? Very good. Um I've had half of my morning coffee so um, good. Well, I've had my cup of tea so
1: I'm, I'm set I'm ready
0: to go <laughs> and I guess I thought what we would talk about is a little bit about what you do at Addenbrooke's Cambridge in neurology and I guess that will lead us on to all sorts of interesting discussions around IT and and what you do on a daily basis mm. yep sounds good yeah because what I um what I, what I really like about what you do is actually I, I love uh, writing code, but actually I don't have to do any of it. But to do your daily job day in, day out, you have to go and write code and you actually get paid to do it. So you're, you know, you're not only a proper doctor, you're a proper coder as well.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's true. Uh, I mean, what I do is uh, essentially imaging analysis. So um, just to explain a little bit about my day job, uh, I'm a clinical research fellow. So that means I'm training as a specialist neurology registrar but I'm taking three years out to do a PhD. It's actually going to end up as four years because I've got an extra year of funding. But uh, yeah, I'm looking at um, MRI scans of people with dementia, extracting information uh, from it and applying sort of network analysis techniques uh, to try and understand a bit about the how these diseases affect the brain, how that relates to the clinical aspects of disease, what we see in the... Uh, with people affected by these diseases, and then try and take that back to the underlying pathology as well. So yeah, that all
0: needs a lot of uh, computational analysis to get that done, really. A lot of computer power. And I was really confused about how that is actually done. And I think someone explained it to me. I think someone, uh, I'm not sure if it was you, but they sort of looked me in the eye and thought, this guy doesn't understand, I'll I'll go to layman's terms (laughs) and explain exactly what's happening. And someone said that uh, using fMRI and network analysis, we use a signal called the BOLD signal, which is blood oxygen level dependence. Yeah, so that's a, right. Yeah, a measure yeah. of how um, how much oxygen that area of the brain is using. Is that right? Yeah, that's basically it. So
1: when you have a part of the brain which uh, which has a bit more activity in it, you're using the um, the assumption that it was is called neurovascular coupling. Uh, so the vasculature in that area changes to allow a bit more blood. So you've got a bit of a, more oxygen going uh, to that area of the brain. And it's we're gradually starting to understand that a bit more. I think a few years ago, it was quite a black box as to how that works. But we're just starting to understand a bit better um, how that works. So you co- the signal that you pick up isn't actually brain activity. It's actually this change in, in the way that the blood's distributed around the brain. But that actually couples very well with the brain activity. Yeah. So
0: where does all the computer stuff come in? Because how do you turn that into a sort of network analysis?
1: Yeah, so the... Uh, the data is sort of collected um in a basically a, a four-dimensional file so you've got um, spatial information xyz so if you just take us it's like taking a picture of the brain you've got um one picture in front of you and then the fourth dimension in in, in functional mri is time so um you know, for my patients we put them in the scanner and you take 150 different pictures of the brain um at 2 second intervals so you end up yeah. with this sort of four dimensional xyz and 150 time points um so for each each voxel so this is each little square on your on your picture so that's like a like, volumetric pixel isn't it exactly yeah it's like a pixel on a, on a computer screen so each pixel has a time course um and you can you can do various things with that um, time course uh, and that's where the the computation comes in really just applying uh, statistical models um, to pick out that time course and and find
0: out information from it, really. So if there's a, one sort of area of the brain that, that appears to be metabolizing uh, at, at the sort of same kind of rate as another group of neurons elsewhere in the brain, you would say statistically that those two are connected? Exactly, yeah. And from that, you can build up uh, networks
1: of brain activity. So basically looking at which bits of the brain are talking to each other um, and and which bits aren't basically?
0: That's really cool. So that's where where you need all of the the computing power. So did you what did you do? Go and buy a big big Mac Pro, or did you? How did, <laughs> where did you get all this computing power from? Well, fortunately at,
1: at Cambridge there's quite a big um, sort of set of um, imaging servers. So there's, there's a lot. I mean, it, you can't you can do some of this analysis on the on the desktop. Um, But it would take you a a long time and when you're dealing with you know I've got about 80 patients or so on so it's a you know reasonable size data set you can't just do that on your your laptop at home Uh, so I I use some a a set of of cluster servers um, which are based at the 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 Wolfson Brain Imaging Centre in um, in Cambridge so they've just reorganized them so um, there's four servers and four clusters and uh, and these have got massive amounts of ram so you've got sort of 32 or 64 gig of ram um and uh, you know processors with uh, which are incredibly fast and and linking together they'll they'll be like 12 or 24 cores in a in a single machine so um, I mean layman's wow. term that's a lot of computer power so that's like sitting in front of your your desk that's just piled up with lots of computers all working on your data at the same time
0: just as you're saying that I'm thinking what what, what could I use that for what could I hack into <laughs> <laughs> yeah no exactly yeah. have you heard of any in- innovative, uh, innovative ways of people using the clusters
1: well, I, what I—I I mean, what I really like—and I've—I've got into using recently because I've been doing some sort of modelling work to, um, uh, to, to try and and sort of do some simulations of of diseases in some senses, um, and I'm actually using a different um uh, set of clusters for that, which is distributed around the university. So it's called CamGrid, um, and this is based on an on open source framework called Condor, uh, and there's about two hundred servers around the university. Um, all sort of similar in, in makeup to the ones that I described before. Um, so it, it, I can run, you know, I'll have a, a script, which will take about eight to 10 hours to run. And I want to run, say, 2000 of those. I can run mm. them in about a day or, or so um, because it just sends the jobs around the university to wherever there's some free computing power, which is just, I think it's just amazing.
0: And it's all open source. So it's it's very low cost base as well. So the Condor project manages all of these computers connected in a cluster?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, a, a series of, of clusters of computers. So uh, the way it works is that each, each department that wants to be involved in the project yeah. um, buys a cluster of computers or has a cluster of computers. Um, I managed to get some free for our, our department, which, were, uh, which the oncology department didn't want anymore. So it's even cheaper. Yeah. So you set up Condor on those computers. Uh, and there's there's a couple of people centrally in the university <laughs> who just oversee the thing um and then you you plug in and, and you're off you can submit your jobs to the to either your and they get run, run on either your cluster or any other cluster across the university so yeah very that's clever. really
0: interesting so are these just normal can you can these be normal computers or are they sort of specialist hardware
1: yeah they could be normal computers um in in reality most of them are um are servers types computers Computers, yeah, um, and I mean, Condor does have the ability to take either Windows or Mac or uh, Linux uh, machines. Uh, in reality, most of the servers are are running Linux um, because, again, it's open source, it's it's cheap, and yeah. and that's what a lot of people use in research. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but in it could be any machine, and you can certainly submit your job from any machine as long as you're as long as you can log into the to the network.
0: Because have yeah. you, you ever heard or did you ever take part in the Folding at Home project?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I've come across this, uh, a few of these over the years. I think the first one that I remember was, was SETI. Yeah. Um, do you remember that one? Man?
0: Yeah, I didn't take part in it, but I downloaded the Folding at Home stuff.
1: What does that do? That's not one that I've, uh, I've heard so of. So Folding
0: at Home, I believe it's a Stanford, I'm just sort of trying to Google it now quickly, um, but it, I believe it's a Stanford project um, where they look they're trying to look at protein folding and they always have to do lots of uh, computation-based stuff. So what they did is they allow people to download a client, whereby um, the when your computer is offline and your processor is not being used, the client mm. will then utilise your processor to try and help with the project. So even you know whilst you're sort of away from your desk having coffee or or you know watching TV, you, you're actually helping uh, the re- a research institute using their computing power over the internet.
1: Yeah, I think it's a brilliant idea, and I think it seems to be the way that. That things are going just people working together using lots of, of computing power mm-hmm. um to to really interrogate these it's really complex systems you know, complex in the generic sense but also in the, the mathematical sense yeah uh, and i think to to solve a lot of the problems today in in neurology particularly neuroscience but also other areas of medicine like genetics so harnessing that yeah
0: large amount of computer power is, is really important actually. Yeah. And um I don't know if you've ever seen some of the hospitals. I can't remember there's one hospital that I went to in London. They they were downloading these uh they're putting these programs on them over via the via the, the network um that manage power. So when you know it's come six o'clock the, the computer will just shut down if it's not being used. And actually really? I, I've heard of cases where um someone was sort of typing a letter and uh, the computer started shutting down on them. But I just wonder <laughs> if we ought to not be managing these computers. I mean, there's loads of computers in the NHS, and we, we one of the things that comes out of digitising the clinical record is what are you going to do with all that data? And yeah. that seems like a perfect case to use something like Condor and grid computing. Yeah, whilst the NHS computers not being used, can it be doing something useful?
1: Yeah, I mean, no, I think it's possibly. I think that would take a lot of infrastructure and a lot of setup. Yeah. Um, I think there is an issue about um, you know you'd have to keep these computers on and run them and keep the power going, and <clears throat> you know how um, whether that's actually an efficient um, thing to do because that will cost a lot of money I think just to keep the, the the power on. So I can see why hospital would want to shut down its computers out of powers because you see these ones that are left on for days and days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, if you could harness the uh, that power for something else, the problem is that you've used NHS computers. They are uh-huh. so slow. I'm not sure you're going to be able to
0: do a lot of useful work on them to be honest. <laughs> There's actually a project now um, that I heard about through the NHS Hack Day groups um, of someone being able to, uh, I'm not sure if it exists or they were talking about it, um, a program whereby through the web you could quiz a particular computer and find out its specs. Okay, yeah, which is that's... Which would be incredibly interesting just to sort of compare the different specs of computers in different hospitals and um, you know, just do the sort of JavaScript thing yeah. in the browser. That, I mean, that would be great just to find out what what actually is out there. But some of the computers aren't actually that low spec. They're just, just, I don't know what, I don't know what it is. They just don't, I mean, I guess it's Windows. It's, it's Windows, isn't it? It's Windows, yeah. It must obviously. be. And it's,
1: yeah, and it's the, you know, the firewall and the, the virus uh, software and, uh, and everything else that's on it um, just slows them down, I, I think. And, uh, I, I, most of the, most of the, the computers I've seen in the NHS are relatively lowish spec, sort of low-medium, but then, yeah, by the time you've opened the three or four applications that you need to, uh, to find out basic information on one individual, then it's used up all the CPU power and and all the RAM and you're just, you're just struggling, (laughs) so,
0: And they all use Internet Explorer six, don't they? Or, or, or you know, if if you get Internet yeah. Explorer seven, you you know you're laughing in terms of uh, you know being able to do stuff on the web. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean not. I mean it's a terrible browser, but <laughs> we're usually it's a treat to find Internet Explorer seven on an NHS computer in in my book. I yeah, I, no, found, I, I,
1: yeah I, I find the same thing, yeah.
0: I think I found IE8 once and I nearly had a heart attack.
1: <laughs> I was very pleased. That can't have been, that must That must have been another computer someone had, had put on the uh, the NHS system, I can't believe
0: that. Yeah, I was just sort of working on someone's personal laptop. <laughs> just, <laughs> but IE6 is supposed to be dead. Um, I think it was, it's, you know, 10 years old and I think... In, Early yeah. 2013, they were supposed to kill it, and it was just going to be unsupported. And Microsoft don't yeah, don't want I, I it. Yeah, I thought it had
1: big security flaws as well and things. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I was sort of surprised that uh, the NHS hasn't done more to to update it. And I'm not sure how much this is a you know NHS-wide thing um, in terms of their security and um, settings that be, that are, are people are told to use centrally. And but I suspect it's more just individual hospitals actually. Um, just ha- having the capacity to be able to update all their computers at the same time. So.
0: I don't know what the issue is, but I went to one of the IT guys before, and mm-hmm. um, you know I was I was I was developing websites at that point, and and to make them compatible for Internet Explorer six is a big big pain. Even Internet Explorer seven is a pain. Um, yeah, but it's a lot easier than IE six. And I just went to him and said, you know, why is it that all of these computers have? Um, Internet Explorer 6 when some have Internet Explorer 7 because you must have the license for it. And he said, yeah, yeah, we've got the license. And and I said, well, is it difficult to to, um, put it on certain computers? Will they not run? He said, no, no, no problem. And um, (laughs) the reason he cited was actually the software that that we were running, the um, electronic patient record, was um, not tested fully with the later versions of Internet Explorer. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So they weren't sure whether the buttons or the you know the the sort of the view the layout would work in the new browsers.
1: Yeah, that's um. That's an interesting challenge, isn't it? I think that's um, one of the challenges in research as well as, how much do you stick with software that you know you know it works, it's stable, yeah, um, and it's reliable, and how much do you do you update to the latest version? I think this is a, um. An issue of facing um, in imaging analysis, particularly all the, all the time, yeah. um, because you, you there's certain um, packages around them. The commonest ones are, are SPM, um, which is developed in at UCL in London, and FSL, which is developed in Oxford. Uh, and I'm on you know, follow the lists, the email lists of those two pieces of software. And there's always some update coming up and they say, Oh yeah, you you must update to the latest version. Uh, But then you, you you've got these pipelines of, of processing, which you've been using for years and you've done all your analysis, uh, using that, the older software, um, and had, yeah, there's a lot of black boxes in this image processing, um, uh, pipelines. And, And even if you delve into them, you don't know, always what's changed so if your results change is it because of the software or is it something actually to do with your data
0: yeah what a nightmare
1: so yeah it's a challenge
0: i think is there stuff that breaks because i know that developing sort of websites and web applications i will actually um when when you do ruby development there's something called a gem file that generally these little um packages are packaged up in things called gems and um they're hosted online uh on on rubygems.org and a gem file just specifies what plugins and things you, you or what parts of the software what what gems you want to use and if mm. you don't specify a version it will download the latest one and i've run into problems where you're trying to update all of the gems um to get the latest patches and it updates to perhaps a version that that isn't compatible with all the other gems in your system and everything just breaks
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i've had that um once or twice where I've, uh, you know i had an old uh, um I've used a, a newer version. Actually, there has been a big issue with with one bit of my analysis, which needs an updated version of Python yeah. uh, and particular py- Python packages to do network analysis. And I tried to run it on the uh, on the imaging servers, and uh, they're just running a stone age version of Python. I don't know quite why they're using that uh, such an old version, um, but uh, you know, I had to get a, a new virtual server set up on the machines. With all the most up-to-date software, so that I could run this bit of analysis. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's conflicts between different versions is is a challenge.
0: I guess let's move on to software because something that really impressed mm. me is you. Um, we we have to do these seminars on the Friday, and you gave one recently, didn't you? Where you just outline you know what you've been up to over the last year, and mm. uh, at the end, you, you people generally try and credit their uh, the people that their funding organizations and people that have helped them. But (laughs) at the end of credits, there were some people you thanked, but what I was Mm. interested in was all of the open source software that you listed. Thank you, Python and and Linux. And I guess we can move on to um, most of all all of your research is done using open source software, which is impressive.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I I just think it's, uh, you know, there's a huge community of people out there um, who give up their time um, to develop this amazing software, Uh, and there's amazing communities of support out there. Um, so I thought it was really important actually to make people aware of, of open source software in general. Um, and I think just in general terms, the two, the two reasons that I use open source uh, for research are firstly, that it's very customizable. So, um, and you get a lot of choice. So if one bit of software doesn't quite work for you, either you can have a look into it and try and hack it and change it and make it a bit better, um, and um certainly you know python scripts are very very easy to to chop and change and and um and improve um and uh, and secondly they're as i mentioned earlier they're 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 free at the point of use as well, so you don't we're not really in terms of research you're you're always looking at ways to keep your costs down yeah and why pay for Microsoft Office when you've got LibreOffice for example yeah um i know there are some some features of microsoft office which which people like and people use but i mean at, at the end of the day um if you're just doing if you're writing text and writing letters I, I can't really see the point of of using microsoft office much for that to be honest
0: yeah no i completely agree and and i'm not proud to admit this but there was a time when um i mean i wasn't always a mac aficionado and um <laughs> I'm slightly embarrassed to say that I did use Windows a lot and I used to um, dislike the idea of using a Mac. The way I came over to Mac actually is what happened was my my hard drive died and I was a sort of fifth-year medical student at that point, so I was swimming in debt and I thought, what do I do? And I'd built my own computer um, and I'd put a new hard drive in it and everything and I needed to to find something to install on it. And um, I mean, the options were buying a copy of uh, Microsoft uh, windows um, trying to find a pirate copy which you, you probably you know you shouldn't do mm-hmm. um, or use something open source like linux mm. so at that time it must have been oh, about 2007 and i was looking into to what to use and i was looking into ubuntu kubuntu um, those kinds of things yeah and i loved the way that unix did things i loved the unix-based system but actually i didn't know enough about computers to to make things happen and make things work so then i ended up getting into Mac because it's a Unix-based system. Things just tend to work for you. Um, yeah. And here I am. But I mean, I'd love to go back and experiment. I've got got a PC to the right of me at the moment and I've got a, a, a Ubuntu distribution on there. Um, mm. And I'd love to go back into it and just sort of see what's changed and and, uh, and see if I can use stuff.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think an awful lot has changed actually um, with usability. I, I, I use um, Ubuntu. I'm running Ubuntu at the moment uh, on my um my my laptop at home um and at work i use kubuntu so that's um in technical terms it's it's uh, ubuntu under the bonnet but with a, a kde windows manager which you can tweak a bit more um and uh, the usability now is fantastic one we had another clinical research fellow join our, our group a few weeks ago yeah. tim ham you, you i'm sure you know him yeah he looks and, very smart uh, yeah he uh, he got a new machine um had windows 7 on it Um, he'd used Red Hat and and things like that in his previous job, but not really just for doing some basic imaging. He knew how to do the imaging analysis, but not anything about operating systems. So I just gave him a USB with, um, Kubuntu on it, loaded up within an hour. The whole system was on there and he'd customized it, was tinkering around with the layout and things, um, and using it, um, not. Really being very familiar with um, with Linux beforehand, uh, so I, I think the being a, Ubuntu particularly has taken a lot of time um, to make sure that the the distribution is easy to use and just works, uh, and I think they've done quite well in that really. So yeah, I think now is a good time to go back to open open source operating systems, definitely.
0: Yeah, I mean, if I had to, if I had to, if someone spilled a large soft drink on my on my mac laptop I, w- I would definitely consider having an open source linux computer yeah um and for those maybe that don't use linux but i mean i, I suppose we should explain a little bit about what it is but it, it's mainly yeah. uh, it's an operating system that was started by linus Torvalds i think yes and um there were lots of just dis- different distributions of linux and i think it started with debian and bsd they're different distributions but people there are lots of forks so it each sort of project has taken its own direction and ethos, and some forks are m- probably more updated than others. Yeah, um, and I think Ubuntu and Kubuntu are a a Debian-based distribution. I think that's right. Yeah, that's where they came from originally, uh, and they still share
1: some of the uh, Debian packages. Um, but there's, I, I think um, they they much have gone much more for sort of usability and. Um, you know, integration with social networking, for example. So it's very easy to set up Twitter and Google plus and Facebook and all these sorts of things, yeah. um, and share your pictures online and those sorts of bits and pieces. Um, but it's still very stable under the, uh, because it's got, as you say, Debian under, under the bonnet. Um, so it's, it's stability and reliability is, is excellent. Um, and it's backed by, and this is where it gets a bit murky because Ubuntu is backed by a company called Canonical yeah. um, who do some of the development. They don't charge for the software, but they charge for the support. So if you're want, if you a big company, you wanted to install Ubuntu on all your machines, yeah. um, you could then um, pay him for support services from Canonical um, to do that.
0: So it's Mark um, Shuttleworth, isn't he? He's, uh, he's like a big South African... yeah
1: Yeah, and space traveler
0: and whatever else he does he goes into space does he
1: yeah yeah he was uh i think he's i'm not sure whether he's been or whether he's got one of the first tickets to go on the one of the space shuttles up in yeah this is richard
0: branson's thing yeah i think so yeah i don't know all the details to be honest but yeah he's quite a character lucky guy but what a great way to give back to the world if you if you know if you have got lots of money and you're interested in philanthropy i mean giving the world an operating system alternative to something like windows i think it's nice
1: yeah definitely yeah and he's, i mean he has got a company he does make money from it but yeah i mean the, the philosophy is clearly there uh and there's been some blogs recently about some they're changing the the, the um uh the the default windows environment uh, the window environment not windows but window um, as in what you see on the screen. Yeah. Um, and he so, said, you know, I, okay, we work with the development community. I don't always get what I want, but, you know, we have this dialogue and conversation. Um, and uh, sometimes it gets a bit heated, but, you know, that's, uh, that's what happens when, you, when you're when you working in a community, really. Um, yeah. So, it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah.
0: But it's nice what he's been able to do by just taking charge and just moving forward with his own philosophy and working very hard on something. I think the... Yeah, so- Ubuntu and and the other related versions have have done extremely well in bringing it to the masses. It's great.
1: Yeah, they have, and they're now you know looking. There's going to be an Ubuntu phone out later this year, uh, which I think is going to be very interesting to see. Oh, there's a uh, Firefox
0: phone as well, isn't there?
1: Yeah, yeah, they've started their own OS as well, haven't they? So I, we'll see how how well they do. Um, I think the the Ubuntu one is interesting because um, it it'll have a a, a computer operating system on the phone so you can plug in a screen plug in a keyboard plug in a mouse and you have a complete computer and that's been tried in the past and it's never really taken off um but i think the um the way that they've been using moving the user interface uh of the computers is a bit more sort of going towards you know, a bit it looks a bit more like a touch screen setup right. so you know it might uh, it might do it might work quite well but there's Steve.
0: definitely um, options there for the NHS. I mean, I know you said that with the Ubuntu distribution, you you might have to pay for support. But there are all sorts of other distributions that, that I know, um, like Mint um, and FreeSUSE and, you know, there's Red Hat, Fedora, lots of different distros, all do different things in slightly different ways. But there's definitely an alternative there, I think, that the NHS could utilise. There's no, no reason to pay Microsoft for this stuff.
1: Well, unfortunately, a lot of people are tied into um into contracts a lot lot of the um well health authorities but um trusts and and so on are tied into contracts with microsoft and a lot of the the clinical um software because um in microsoft and and bt and whoever else bought into the, the whole um nhs spine idea yeah um and everything was sort of shifted across to microsoft then then i i'm not sure that anyone's really doing any serious development for health software in Linux which yeah. I think is a real shame because you're right i mean it's more sec- it's obviously you know it's more secure because you don't get viruses on linux um, and the, the the reason for that is you need a root password to be able to change the um, the, uh, the sort of, the gubbins in the deep in the heart of the operating system whereas windows you don't so it's quite easy to 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 find vulnerabilities in windows with, where well, it's a lot more difficult in, in Mac and Linux because of that. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it seems stable. It runs better on older machines. Uh, I think that's one uh, one real key difference is because it's a much smaller operating system. It's, it's much lighter. It runs a lot faster. So yeah. it's not going to take um, you know, 10, 15 minutes for your computer to load up or whatever it is, as it does literally at, at the moment. Oh. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I think there is a lot of potential for, um, for flexibility in, in software that's designed, but it's, it will be a huge paradigm shift. Uh, and I, I can't see it happening soon, unfortunately, but in the research world, you know, it's, um, it, it's developing and, and, uh, and you know, most people who do doing serious research will use Linux either all the time or, or part of the time, whether they realize it or not, I think, because of, it's it's used on so many servers and so on
0: that's true um, there's lots of people using Macs, isn't there as well um in the in the research community especially individual people yeah um Mm. which is which is a good thing diversity is a good thing
1: yeah it is yeah yeah and i wouldn't i wouldn't i think there's good things about microsoft um in terms of people are familiar with it and it's it's relatively intuitive most of the time most of the time it, it just works but so you know i wouldn't i'm not anti Microsoft in any sense, but I think there are big advantages to um to having other platforms available
0: yeah, yeah certainly. And um, let's talk a little bit more about the other software you use, because we spoke about Python, mm. and that's the programming language that you use to do a lot of the scripts that do all the, the magic in, in so your network analysis. <laughs> yeah. Um, we spoke about Linus, but there are all sorts of other things that you that you use as well that are open source that are, that are really going to be of interest to not only people doing research, but maybe clinicians as mm. well.
1: Yeah. So I think um, if you're a clinician, um, you know, audit is a big thing um and so your choice of statistical software i think is very important um so i use r for um for my statistics um which uh there's i have to admit there's a bit of a learning curve with r yeah for sure um but it's becoming easier uh there, there's some, there's a nice package called r studio yeah um which uh basically gives you a nice window with easy access to lots of help menus Um, And I have to say that the, the help um, documents in R are the best I've come across in any language. They give you nicely laid out. uh, It it is a format to all the help documents for each function. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're quite strict on having that help document for every single function in a particular way. So it lays out what, what the function does, um, what the options are and gives you a couple of examples at the end. So, If you're doing a clinical audit, if you've got a lot of data, then um, R is a really nice way of of dealing with that data. And it draws really nice graphs as well. So very pretty pictures, which is important, particularly if you want to publish your your work.
0: But I was amazed by when I, because I only really started using R, I'd say about eight months ago. And Mm. um, I was quite fortunate because I knew a little bit about programming. And it is very much like writing in a programming language. It is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it
0: developed from um, a more programmy type
1: language beforehand, which is called S++. Yeah, uh, I think it's moved on quite a bit since then. Um, but yeah, it is a it, it is a programmer's language in that sense. But it has, um, and I don't know whether you've used MATLAB much, but um, I haven't no. You know, MATLAB is a, is, is a propi- proprietary software, so it's not open source. Um, but it's more of a sort of mathematical, statistical language and you can put data in and play around with matrices and, and things like that. Um, R has all those things, but it, it, what it does nicely because it's more programming, more of a programming language is it handles strings and variables a bit better. So what I mean by that is if you've got a, um, say you've got a, a column of, um, uh, of patient identifiers, um, and then a column of say, I don't know, blood pressures or something like that. Yeah you can have that in in R as a data frame so the data frame is the, the sort of main um
0: uh
1: way that data is stored in R the most one of the most flexible ways it's it's stored so you you never lose that link between your your labels your identifiers as strings and your your data as numbers whereas in, as in MATLAB and other things it's it's quite easy to do that
0: okay uh, yeah because um, it's you kind of write instructions, don't you? you? Say, well, you know, here's my data, and it's in this .csv file. Take that data, bring it into R, and then you mm. tell it. And then you tell it to do certain things. Can you do some descriptive statistics on it? Can you um, you know, d- divide this data into different groups and do a subgroup yeah. analysis? Then can you draw some pretty graphs? And the graphs, as you say, they look great. They look you know the kind of graphs that you see in um in papers with the you know nice error bars and re- really nice lines. It's it's really nice to look at.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, and there's a particular um, graphs um, package that I've started to use over the last year or so called uh, ggplot2. Oh. Uh, and that's, um, it, it uses a particular, like, um, quite an intuitive way of putting your graph together. So you say, well, this is the data, this is X, this is Y. Um, and this is a sort of structure in the data. And then I'll add to that a um, A bar plot, for example, or yeah. add to that some error bars, and it will just take that original data and just use that to uh, sort of add all these things to your graph so it 's quite a nice way of of building up your graph fairly intuitively
0: yeah anyone involved in data um you know anyone doing clinical audit quality improvement projects um You can fight with spss um and (laughs) and, and getting you know someone to pay for it for you but if you really want to do stuff um and make things look great and and do it all for free they are the r project i think it's r-project.org is is really worth looking at
1: yeah definitely Uh, yeah and it's there's so many um different packages available for it as well so if you want to do there's there's it does linear regression particularly well um but uh, there's about four or five packages which will do ANOVAs, for example, and things like that. So, yeah, it's really flexible uh, and, and there's, a lot, there's a lot there available for it.
0: And coming on to making things look really nice and yeah. um, and using stuff for free, we both use LaTeX. Is that right? You use LaTeX? Yeah, I call it LaTeX. I don't know. Is it LaTeX? Is I think latex? you have to say it like you're German. Oh, really? Yeah, LaTeX. Ja, so good. LaTeX. <laughs> So, I mean, that's like another programming language where, well, it's more like a markup language like HTML where you just write, well, I want a, a heading here. Um, I want this to be a paragraph. I want there a space to be here, a graph here, a mathematical formula here. And then yeah. you hit go. And then it formats this beautiful PDF for you.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm using it for my um, my thesis and that's where I've really got, uh, got into it um, because it takes so much of the stress out of having to, as you say, Think about where your graphs going to be in relation to the text, or what your ref- where your references are going to be. It just sorts it all out, so you don't need to worry about that side of things. Um, yeah. I think if you're coming at it from Microsoft Word or something like that, it takes a bit of uh, getting your head round because you can't just press con- you know, Control B to make something bold, for example. You have to specify you know, text BF or whatever. So, but it's um, again, there's lots of different programs that will do that will help you with um, writing the latex um, so so you know, it's not it's a little bit of a learning curve, but once you 've got it it's really useful actually I find it incredibly um, incredibly easy to use um, and it gives as you say really nice results
0: yeah i mean uh, i I tried to say this a little bit at the last digital doctor conference uh, at the end of last year. Um, we did. I did a talk with some friends of mine, Santino Capocci and Nishant Bedi, and we 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 tried to cover as much as we could on software for research. And LaTeX was one of the things that I really wanted to show people because uh, my friend Nish does. Uh, he's uh, I mean he has a Mac now, but he tends to write everything in Microsoft Word and uses um, EndNote for his bibliographic management. Um, my friend Santino uses Senti on the Mac for his bibliographic management, and um I think he uses scrivener actually, which is um a really nice writing app for the mac and yes. I, re- I really should do something around this like a um i really should do a uh a sort of screencast or something i i mean I did one recently'll <laughs> talk about in a minute about my way I do bibliographic management oh yes oh, yes
1: i did see that I uh, which was, to make you it thought work. it was
0: unnecessarily um complex right
1: yeah that's right yeah <laughs> it was uh yeah you certainly um didn't spare on the the multiple programs and uh, multiple copies of files you know putting it all together it's uh it was definitely a programmer's approach to bibliographic software
0: yeah definitely unnecessary but it's bulletproof it will be around forever and uh no one can take my data away from me that's what yeah that's, it'll be around forever
1: on your computer and probably no one else's but yeah no it's i, I admire your courage
0: <laughs> i mean <laughs> my work for now is at the moment I, I don't actually write in latex um i do know how to do it but i find it a bit prohibitive um to writing really quickly so i write in something called markdown um which is a sort of markup language i think if you if you google markdown tutorial there's a nice little youtube video that i did uh, for pod not a while ago yeah. and um so i write in markdown and then i convert that into latex so i use scrivener i, I write in markdown and i do all my referencing in there and then i um I export it into LaTeX and it does all the conversion for me, and then I just compile it into PDF and it does all the you know BibTeX and the bibliographic management just works and it looks great. Yeah. yeah, that's good. I
1: think there there is a bit of an issue with um uh, with with other people adopting LaTeX as well because one of my issues is is my my supervisor is is not so familiar with LaTeX so he's got to review my. Um, my thesis. Do I send him the, the final PDFs, which he can sort of add comments to, don't or do I send the him the underlying tech files, which might be a bit more difficult to read and he won't be able to see the final um,
0: product? Yeah, don't send him the tech. He won't... <laughs> it, what will he do with it? I don't know if Microsoft Word can open tech, can it?
1: Well, any notepad can open tech. I mean, anything can uh, you should be able to read a dot tech file. It's just some text.
0: Uh, but there was a, there was a,
1: someone I was talking to a little while ago who um, she's very keen on a, on open source. She's, she works on this network analysis in in France and Sophie Ashard, and she's she's a brilliant scientist, brilliant researcher. Yeah. Uh, and she um, wanted to write a paper in LaTeX for a. a to submit to a particularly prestigious journal and they said yeah we we accept um, latex submissions here's the template so she downloaded the template wrote the paper looked lovely nice formulae nice figures sent it back yeah uh, and they said yeah yeah that's great we you know a couple of revisions they accepted the paper and then they wrote back and said oh can you send us the um the word file that you got this from originally
0: no yeah
1: and i just think you know if you go you go to all that effort to um to to have a latex template on your website and then you don't even uh at the last minute you don't even
0: accept it or journals or oh. journal. yeah i mean i would i'd love to do an episode about journals maybe um maybe you should come back for that because uh I've got, I've got lots to say about journals i could i could <laughs> bore anyone to death about you know that you know why they're there and the point yeah yeah, we'll probably best stop it there before I get too too worked up.
1: Yeah, no. Well, my brother's just about to start working for a uh, a publishing company uh, in uh, in Switzerland. So maybe you should talk to him about that. I think he's he's got a lot to say about journals as well. He's, really good an and open, bad. Yeah, it's an open source publishing company, but uh, yeah, he's he actually got me into a lot of this open source software. So I, yeah, I think you should talk to him about it.
0: <laughs> Definitely. But Tim, I must point this out. You've probably found this, but um. The once you get familiar with LaTeX, you can have these templates, can't you? Um, where you get everything the way that you like it. Yes. And if you're writing your thesis in LaTeX, you must check out. I think if you just Google uh, Cambridge Engineering LaTeX, there's a guy who's written a template for. I think it's it's uh, called uh, Cambridge University Engineering Department Thesis um, PhD slash MPhil template. Yes, that's the one that I'm using. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing because he's he's put this whole project. Um,
1: with lots of different um, files for each for each chapter, yeah, um, uh, and yeah, you just write your chapter on in one um, in one file and just press a button, and it just puts the whole thing together. Yeah, it, invaluable, very very
0: useful. With a little picture of the university uh, shield on the front and and all sorts of stuff, it's it truly amazing.
1: Yeah, it's brilliant. I think that's the nice thing about um, sort of working in this in sort of computational medicine in general is that people just share their data share their scripts um, and it, you know if you don't know how to, to do something if you're stuck if you want a latex template you just google some google it and it's there and then people are, will just share their stuff which is great
0: yeah i mean the one of the the, the conversations we've been having recently on the show is about the the programmers community and just how generous they are, and I don't know why this is mm. more than any other industry, but I guess it's it's partly to do with open source, but just how people how people are willing to work on something for free and just do something because it's inherently valuable and because they want to, and I think that just makes everyone so generous, and it definitely drives things forward in a way that I've never seen any any other industry move.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. It's interesting though when you when you follow the um, the discussions or the forum pages of a couple of different bits of software. Uh, they're they're very different, actually. So the Ubuntu community is very. I, I find that very um, helpful, welcoming. There's people of all ages on there. Um, there's quite a few women in the community, and and which um, which is good. And they have have their own advocacy sort of bits going on. Um, and then you get to something like the R community and uh, and you get a lot of trolls in the R community. And oh, no. the guy who wrote the orig- a lot of the original packages, he writes very short, sharp emails um, and it's got a very different feel to it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there is in general, people are very generous, but it, it slightly depends, I think, on what software and, and what community you're, uh, you're in. And I suppose it a... only takes one or two
0: people to completely change the kind of ethos of, of a particular group.
1: It does. And, and that's one of the things I think about the internet in general, isn't it? That you're, it's, it's, um, a lot of it is dominated by, uh, very loud minorities or, or loud individuals who are, um, putting forward their views very vehemently. Um, and you know, you can argue whether that's a good or a bad thing. Um, but I think it, it's certainly something you have to be aware of and go in with your, with eyes open uh, really. Yeah.
0: And it makes me think about the NHS as well. And, um, and, and the research communities, and uh, I always try and draw parallels between those kind of communities and the programming communities, but um, I wonder if we, we we could be doing things a little better um, just by being a bit nicer to each other and having a bit more pride. Sounds like a, a really easy thing to do, but um, <laughs> sometimes I see things that don't make me proud to be working in the NHS. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, I, to be honest, that's, that's one of the reasons I quite like doing research <laughs>
1: because you're out of this in the hospital on the wards is a very macho environment uh you know you yeah. it, you're you're under pressure uh you know, you're people are looking at how you're performing people are judging your performance every single day you know whether it's your patients or the nurses or your colleagues um, you know, which is fine and that's a, as it should be um but at least research gives you that um little bit of breathing space if you like and and your reputation is built up over uh, over a whole body of work rather than just, you know, how you are day to day. Um, And yeah, it's very competitive. I mean, I think you see it in, in different style, the styles of people that go into different medical specialities, don't you? Um, you On the whole, uh, this is a sweeping generalization, but you know, orthopods, neurosurgeons are a little different from us neurologists or, or rheumatologists. (laughs) We're a bit wet and weedy. Uh, You know, they're, (laughs) they're much more, gung and and matcha, so that, and that's that's why it's the way things are. It's horses for courses, isn't it?
0: I like the way that that in neurology, it's okay for you to have a man bag. That's fine. <laughs> uh, it's okay for you to have a blazer, and you can wear pretty much whatever shoes you like and get away with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and you you can be you can definitely be idiosyncratic in neurology. Uh, in in fact, you almost have to be idiosyncratic. Yeah, you know, there's a whole bat. There's a whole um, BMJ article a few years ago now on uh, what you find in a neurologist's bag and why they carry a man bag. Uh, It was,
0: uh, yeah, very (laughs) revealing. I'm going to have to look that one up um, and compare it to my own. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of things in there that I don't necessarily need. Um, Headphones, paracetamol, Apple, you know. Yeah, it builds
1: up over years, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. Um so um the other thing that I wanted to mention is um our sort of different uh, thoughts on bibliographic management um because yes. we recently had a little conversation on Twitter about that after I posted my video so I use an open source thing called Bibdesk and you use something called Mendeley
1: Yeah yeah Mendeley's um it's been around I'm not sure it's about 5 6 years now I think uh, and it really has changed quite a lot over those uh, over those few years um and it's got very good functionality now I mean that I think bibliographic softwares are, are, are difficult because whether you use EndNote or Mendeley or Papers or or, yeah. or whatever else, they've all got pros and cons. Um, for me, Mendeley works works the best um, because, well, firstly, it's you can use it across different platforms. Um, secondly, it's very easy just to drag and drop your your papers into the into the program, um, or even just uh, download the references from a, a single clip, click on the web browser. There's the buttons you can, you can get to do that. Or you can just save your, your paper, your PDF to a folder. A Mendeley will just pick it up and automatically get all the information from it. Yeah. And the accuracy of the information that it extracts from the PDFs has improved a lot over the, over the last few years. Um, so, it, what it, it's, it's really good for organizing PDFs. Uh, so you can tag things, you can put them into folders, and you can put um, annotations, underlines, things like that. We'll um, maybe come back to that in a minute because I know that's the bit you have issues with. Yeah. But something that's really improved over the, uh, that they improved about three, four months ago was the citation. So when you put a citation into a document, um, there were some issues with how that was done because you couldn't. You couldn't edit it, so I mean as with all these software that has has a huge bank of um of um of standard citation styles and formats which and you can just pick your journal and it will automatically do the formatting, but it wasn't always quite right uh, or you know the journal had changed its its formatting recently, yeah, and you weren't able to edit it, but you now can, so I think that's that was the last stepping stone for me. Um, to say, actually, this is now a really, really good, really practical uh, piece of software.
0: And I heard a story on how it actually finds the paper for you. So I think uh, what it tries to do first and foremost is, is to take the metadata and then do a little search on on the metadata to try and get the, the citation record. Um, and I think failing that, what Mendeley used to do, I don't know if they do it now, is they look at the front page or or maybe parts of the article and analyse its structure, and then go out to a sort of big bank of data that they have about the the way the articles structured, and see which one matches. Which is just incredible. I can think of so many different uses for for that kind of technique um, in medicine and in research.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's very clever. I, again, I don't know the details, but that's what I understand is they use the um, the the files that they've got. So if you, I mean, I've, I upload my PDFs to the Mendeley server, so I can access them from any computer. Um, and, uh, it uses those stored that stored data. Uh, so if you've got, you know, wing et al from 2012 or whatever, oh, ho, ho. Uh, ha ha ha, <laughs> and, you know, someone else has got it somewhere else and they download the PDF and it, it, it sort of looks to see what, what information you've put in about that paper and copies it across. Um, so, so sometimes, I mean, I found the, the odd time that it gets the author list wrong, particularly if the authors run two lines or something like that, but it's generally pretty accurate.
0: Yeah. And as you say, it's good that you can go back in and edit it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you notice the, it's a piece of software where you do notice the changes actually. A few years ago, about two, three years ago, it had real problems with New England Journal articles. You download them and it just wouldn't. What, just philosophically? or Sorry?
0: Just philosophically had a problem with the New England Journal? (laughs) I I don't know. You'd have to ask the software. Maybe (laughs) Maybe it's a snub.
1: But uh, it just wouldn't recognize any of the title or authors or anything um so you'd have to put it all, all in manually and people sort of complained on the website and say oh well you know you should you should just have a separate format for new england journal and it should just recognize them and they said actually no we want we're trying to 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 have a generic recognition system which would work for any paper yeah. so just because the new england journal is laid out a bit differently it should still fit with the general recognition software which works for any article from any journal so i think that's quite a nice approach actually um, and so they seem quite clever in the way they approach things.
0: Yeah, and I think that's right. Like um, we actually engaged Victor Henning, who's the co-founder and CEO of Mendeley didn't, on Twitter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. Yeah. And and I like that, that you can sort of maybe because it's maybe an open source community and people are willing to share ideas. He seemed quite open to, to making a change
1: yeah he did and it it does i mean it's i think as they've got bigger they've become a bit less responsive and and there are a couple of you know big issues which you see on the forums which which haven't been fixed as quick as they might have done over the last year or two but i think that's really they've been a victim in, of their own success in that sense that they're, they've grown so so much that um they're having to deal with different platforms and uh, and just maintain this huge piece of software so um but yeah they are generally very responsive and 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 do reply to feedback there's a guy called I think it's Robert Knightley who always seems to be on the forums from Mendeley replying to everything. I assume it's one person and not lots of different people are replying under the same name uh, yeah. but you know he 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 writes really sensible comments um so yeah they do seem to be and I think that comes as you say from the fact i I'm not sure whether they're actually open source um this is a bit of a moot point uh. I think, but they they're certainly um, free in that sense. Yeah, they're probably um,
0: right. Yeah, it's not it's not open source in the fact that you can't download their code and start hacking on it. As far as I know, or maybe you can.
1: Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think you can. Um, but uh, but it's, it's but freely freeware. available at least, and it's got that community, that open source community feel to it, even if it's not technically open source.
0: Yeah, and the thing that I that we wanted to change was. Um, I, I maybe take a paper that I might use for three or four different projects and the highlighting and the markup that I wanted for e- for each of those projects might be different. So if I've got a paper, I mean, I can either go and highlight all of my, uh, d- do all the markup in yellow for one particular project and then I might use that paper for another project and um, I'd I'd want different things in the paper highlighted. So then what do I, I, I use a different colour, but what I'm doing at the moment is I'm saving a completely new version of the file with different highlighting and he seemed to... to to take that idea on board that maybe they could have sort of different layers on top of the PDF depending on what project that you're using it for
1: yeah i th- i think that that'll be an interesting idea i mean I, it it's like all of these things you know that's um, it, that's quite a unique way of of approaching uh you know your your way of doing that is is quite unique you know how much is that a general appeal to everyone else and i think this is a challenge that your software developers face generally is that how much do you develop something for one or two specific people uh, and how much do you make it um, you know, g- generally available? I suppose, you know, if it was truly open source, then perhaps you yourself could go in if you if you had the, the time and the ability to to go and hack it for your own purposes. Um, but yeah. And then you could, you can then, I suppose, what happens in the open source community is someone spots a problem, fixes it, and then gives that code back to the, uh, back to the developers, and that um, maybe that's part of the reason why the development of Mendeley has perhaps slowed up a bit over the last year is that they haven't got those people fixing the problems and feeding it back. Um, they've got lots of people commenting on the forums and making suggestions. Yeah, and they've got a, well, yeah, complaining, I suppose, yeah, but they've got quite a good voting system, so issues go up and down and um, as a, as they're fixed or, or not. um, so they haven't got that sort of feedback of of people working on the code
0: and sending them patches. Maybe I'll go and do that. Maybe I'll go to the forum and just and just make myself really loud. <laughs>
1: well, you can only get one vote on the forum. That's where the 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 Mendeley forum is quite good because you can start up a discussion, but then the other people have to agree with you for it to get pushed up the uh, uh, up the um, the list of things
0: to do. Well, I'll have to work something out. I'll have to bribe a few people and and see what I can do. <laughs> Yeah well let,
1: let me know how much you're offering and I'll I might stick a vote on there for you. <laughs>
0: um I want to move on probably and talk about engagement because one thing that I that I um maybe didn't consider when I wanted to go into research was just how important it is getting the word out about what you're doing um and engagement not not only for funding organisations and and things like that but also if you want your paper read I mean let's face it the the world works in citations and and number of publications. And it's a shame that it does that and maybe in our a journal episode we can come on to stuff like that. But um, if you if you can do different things uh, around surrounding your research, you, you might get a few more extra views, a few citations and, and that's in, inherently valuable. It's all about getting the word out and actually, you know, a paper journal that's sent to your home once a month or once a week is probably not the best way to do that anymore with the internet. Um, yeah, and you've yeah. got a blog, haven't you?
1: I have, yeah. It's um timritman.wordpress.com. That's uh, Ritman, R-I-T-T-M-A-N. Just in case you're looking for it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I blog. I try and blog about my about my research. Um, and the, I suppose the, I'm not. It's not a scientific blog as as such. Um, in the sense that the the people that I I think about when I write it are, you know, people with with dementia, who are the, and their their relatives. So the people that I I do the research for, yeah. um, and people who are interested in the diseases that I'm I'm writing about. Um, so that's mainly mainly who I've got in mind when I'm writing. So I think you know I leave the scientific communication side of things to the more traditional uh, roots. and I I don't know whether that's the whether that's the right thing to do. Whether I should blog a bit more on the on the science side of things. Um, and there's always this. Um, I'm always quite torn between. You know, how much you just put everything that you're doing on onto the web, and how much you are a bit protectionist in case there's other people who are working on the same uh, the same thing as as you are, who who are going to beat you to a publication. I know that's not the right way to to think about these things, but you, I think it's natural that you do want to um, to in some senses uh, protect your own. But research so but that's
0: a classic example of the differences that we were drawing earlier between the research communities and and you know the quintessential uh open source yeah. community
1: absolutely yeah yeah and but but you know for the research community there's, there's nothing to lose by putting their um sorry for the open source community there's nothing to lose by putting their um their code on um on for the world to use i'm writing a a little um program with my brother for this network analysis called maybrain um and if you just put maybrain network it it comes up as the first couple of hits it's on google code somewhere um and actually we want people to be able to to download that and use it because that's how um because that's how it'll get used and that's how we'll get famous or whatever you know people are loads of people (laughs) who use our software But, um, in the academic world, if you put something out there and people take it and use it, then actually you lose all that prestige and, and, and uh, and funding potentially that, that could go with you having the first paper on X, Y, Z. So yeah, it's, um, it's, it, it's, it's a tension. I'm, I'm sure you'll come back to that in your episode on the, on journals. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah I, yeah. I quite, I quite enjoy writing the, the blog when I get the time to do it. Um, I, I i wasn't I hadn't blogged for a little while so the other the other day I just put on you know what I did during the day and i have no idea whether anyone will find that at all interesting or useful um, but I normally try and find you know if I've done something significant or published a paper or you know a little while ago I went to the House of Commons for the um p s p association yeah. um to to promote um this sort of progressive supernuclear palsy, which is one of the diseases i I, I, I deal with to try and you know, promote that in the house of commons. So I wrote a blog about that uh, and and that seemed to be quite popular. You know, quite a lot of people uh, looked at it, which was nice to see that people were interested in, in what I'd done and to just sort of raise awareness a bit um, about, about that. And even my own MP retweeted that as a blog Did as well. Really? so that, that was nice. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I really felt there it was a way of really engaging with the political process through the blog which is quite a new experience for me, I have to say.
0: I enjoyed both of those posts, actually. I quite like the one where you sort of documented what you did in a day just to see how sort of uh, similar or or different it was to my own day. And it's interesting if anyone's interested in going into research or just seeing what Tim does to have a look at that post. Um, And there's, you know, all sorts of tea making and, uh, and but you know, (laughs) 8.30 at night you went back to work, didn't you, for a couple of hours. And um, I suppose that's the way when you manage your own time.
1: Yeah, well, I like to, because I've got a son, he's two years old, so I like to try and just keep the nine to five day if I can so that I can see him at the beginning and the end of the day uh and then you know if I need to work in the evening so that's the sort of way I structure the day I suppose um but yeah that was a sort of uh, a fun day I think and a fairly typical day
0: as well there wasn't anything that was too unusual about it which was good yeah and um you you know you're on Twitter as well, and I think Twitter is an amazing medium. I think there's something that we we want to talk about on this show uh, in the not too distant future. But where can they where can people find you on Twitter?
1: Yeah, it's just at Tim Ritman. Uh, so it's yeah, pretty easy to find. Um, there's a the nice thing about having an unusual surname. So it's R I T T M A N. Just search for me, and you'll get you get me most of the time. <laughs> but then you
0: have to spell it out to everyone. So that's probably the downside
1: yeah that is the downside of it but uh, it's my
0: surname's wing and then i and i say it and people people always say you know sort of do a double take and say you know what was that well it's w-i-n-g and yeah it's nice because there's not too many wings around um but it's also a bit of a pain when you have to yeah
1: you do have to spell it yeah yeah
0: the biggest problem actually I have talking on the phone when you're doing neurology is when you say, um, hi, I'm the neurology registrar, people and confuse you with the urology, you know, down south and waterworks problems, that kind of thing. Do you get that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I had a,
1: last time I was on call, I got a phone call at, at three o'clock in the morning from the medical oh. registrar who was, she was absolutely mortified that she'd woken me up in the middle of the night. <laughs> and I, yeah. Oh, no, don't worry. No, it's fine. Because in. You know, it's going to happen and it means I can just go back to bed and I don't have to go into hospital. So,
0: yeah,
1: it's it's going to happen.
0: If any uh, of our listeners have got a, a way to manage that or, or a, a neat trick. Um, oh, that would be really helpful, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't take about, uh, you know, 30 seconds to explain. I'd, I'd be very grateful. Yes. <laughs> so I suppose we should draw things to a close. There's lots more that we could talk about because I know that we're both very interested in global health and big data mm. and IT and making a difference. But um hopefully we'll, you know, if you're interested, we'll come back and do another episode I think that'd be fantastic, yeah. So thanks very much, Tim. Uh, Let's draw things to a close there. And uh, goodbye, everyone. Thank you for listening.